Hello and welcome to the Tenable Research Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Raywood, and this month, delighted to bring you an update on recent blogs from our security response team. And joining us is Scott Cabeza, the leader of that security response team at Tenable. So let's move over and talk about recent vulnerabilities and patches. And joining us now on the podcast is Scott Cavaza. Scott is Senior Manager of Research here at Tenable. Now, our first blog that we're going to talk about this month is uh, about a patch from F5 for their big IP technology. Now, this isn't an older technology, um, but a a new flaw within it. Um, And one actually that had been predicted by uh, the security response team, which is one of the teams that Scott manages here at Tenable, um, to be an issue when they did the uh, the 2020 Threat Landscape Retrospective, which of course came out at the beginning of 2021, uh, as a retrospective, of course. Um, They actually made a prediction of five vulnerabilities that that would be a big issue for the year. Um, And actually one of those was actually within F5's big IP. So it still remains a problem. Um, So Scott, uh, the the blog that we've produced actually named two other flaws that come out in the last couple of years, but this is a new one. I mean, what happened here? Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. So F5's big IP family is basically a a hardware and software solution used for application delivery and centralized device management. And there's like multiple modules they offer, you know, managing DNS, your firewall, access policy manager, um, local traffic management, just to like name a few. What we have here uh, was an authentication bypass vulnerability and the REST component of Big IP's iControl API. So this API is used for management and configuration of these Big IP devices. Um, unfortunately, being an authentication bypass vulnerability, basically allowing you know, an attacker with no authentication who can either access uh, this Big IP appliance via you know, net, the network uh, management port or the self IP address, who, who can then basically uh, execute arbitrary system commands. So this means like, you know, creating and deleting files, modifying or disabling services, and not just, you know, beyond the the severity of of just those types of things, right? It's just another example that we've seen of an authenticated attacker being able to take nearly complete control over an affected big IP system. So as we mentioned, we had a similar issue that was in our top five vulnerabilities from our 2020 threat landscape retrospective report. Um, so it was, it's quite interesting to see, you know, yet another example of an attacker essentially having to not have any requirements other than, you know, the network access or uh, for that management port. Yeah, it's like, like we said at the top there and you just referred to there. There have been two other CDEs associated with Big IP in the last couple of years, and these details are in the blog, which will be a link in the notes there. Um, and they were both exploited, both of these, these vulnerabilities in Big IP. Um, I mean, in terms of, you mentioned like an authenticated attacker, this would allow an attacker to become authenticated. Um, what would be the impact of exploiting this vulnerability? Because that sounds kind of serious. Um, yeah, so as mentioning, you know, because you're an authenticated attacker with access to it. Um, you can run our system commands. So essentially you, you, you could do a lot of things. You can create files, delete files, start modifying services, disabling them completely. Uh, essentially, you know, if that firewall service, for example, is enabled, essentially disabling that. Um, so it's actually kind of a really juicy target for, for an attacker to, to have control over. Um, and, you know, shortly after the, the release of the advisory, you know, proof of concept came out and we've seen exploitation in the wild from some of these already, um, which is, you know, kind of powerful for the course, you know, within a matter of days, you're seeing exploitation attempts. Interestingly enough, um, one of them was, you know, attempting to delete the entire file system, you know, an RM-RF 
star, right? Um, so uh, <laughs> not ideal, right? I guess, hey, they're going to secure somebody that way by just completely wiping out the entire system. Mm. Yeah, and I guess, well, yeah, yeah. I guess thinking with the proof of concept, and this is, you know, we, we come around on these quite a lot, is it's just is it someone, is it someone proving they can do it and ultimately it's someone actually turning around saying this actually could be exploited here's how i've done it is, is that about correct yeah yeah actually proving you know exploitation and and how it's being done right so anyone could grab that script and go run that um and you know maybe it's just running some simple commands and you know looking at what permissions being ran what the user is or something just benign you know or something malicious where you're you know creating a, a shell uh, a backdoor shell to to then you know take further action against that uh that device yeah sure well just uh, one more point then on um, on this big ip patch um this was actually it wasn't a standalone patch actually it was a part of coarsely security notification from f5 um, but this vulnerability had a, a 9.8 uh, rating according to cbs v3 um scott do you think we would have expected something with this level of severity to be issued as an out-of-band patch, or do you think it's been held back to be part of this quarterly notification? It's always tough to say what the vendor might do in these situations. Obviously, it's a high severity scoring CVE, um, but you know we see these types of 9.8s all the time. Uh, not always are they exploited or proven to be exploitable. Um, I mean, the, you know, it's proven, right? Somebody's proven this and and uh, submitted it to the vendor. But in this case, what we have is, is according to the advisory, at least, this was discovered internally by F5. Um, so that may have kind of been a factor into why they decided to wait until their normal cadence and release it with their quarterly patch, you know, their quarterly update release and stay in that schedule. Um, you know, maybe it would have been a different story had this either already been exploited in the wild and they had to respond to it or if this was from a third-party researcher, um, they may, you know, have altered that if for some reason, you know, uh, throughout the disclosure process, you know, maybe communications broke down or something like that. But it's really tough to say. We're, you know, we're really just guessing at this point. And my best assumption is because it was discovered internally, it's probably why they they stuck to their normal cadence. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you, you can't predict or presume what others are doing. I guess it's a, it, it's a situation of, of following what the way they do it and, Hopefully it's, uh, you know, it wasn't as big a deal before it was announced. And obviously once it was rolled out, everyone put the patch in place, which is always the big, uh, the big hope, really. Um, well, speaking of patches, let's move on to another blog that, um, that you covered in uh, the last few weeks. And this was, once again, back to Log4J or Log4Shell. It never goes away, that one. Um, this was a blog actually um, looking at, uh, well, hot patches for Log4Shell, which were actually able to introduce, introduce multiple vulnerabilities uh, in Amazon Web services uh as a jumble of words that i've just come up with scott first of all can you just explain what a hot patch is for it, uh, for this instance for anyone who's never heard of one sure so hot patching is a method to dynamically apply a patch while a system is running so typically you know you might have some environment variables change or something that may require a restart um, when the patch is applied this is kind of a novel technique of let's patch you know, the necessary binaries or, or whatever is under the hood uh, without having to, to cause any downtime, restart services, restart the entire system. Um, minimizing downtime is kind of the goal here, right? So the idea of having to restart a service, reboot a complete system means there's downtime. Um, often that means you're going to have to do a schedule, you know, around that to prevent, you know, interrupting business needs. Um, 
And for some orgs, you know, downtime can be measured in, you know, millions of dollars per second, right? It's maybe not that extreme, um, but maybe it's in the thousands of dollars a second. And still, you know, if you can minimize that at any point, this is a great method to, uh, and especially for cloud environments, like this is a great method for, for applying some of these patches. Right, got it. Okay, so in, in the story that, that the blog that we wrote here, um, there were some vulnerabilities in these patches, though. I guess something wasn't done correctly. What, what, what caused these vulnerabilities and what went wrong? Absolutely. So I'm going to start by prefacing that Amazon's hot patch announcement noted that this hot patch itself was just a mitigation strategy, not a replacement to for updating Log4j. Um, so this was kind of like a stopgap temporary measure to, to help kind of prevent uh, any, any mass exploitation. So in this example, what the researchers at Palo Alto's Unit 42 discovered was that the hot patching solutions introduced a way for a malicious attacker to elevate their privileges and run code as like a privileged user, basically running as a root user, like a top level user. So what happens is this patch, this hot patch is basically doing this continuous search, uh, I think they say every second, for any processes that run a binary with the name Java in it. So they're just constantly looking for this. So in order to do this inside of a container itself, there's a few other binaries that are invoked, but they're doing so without properly containerizing them. So basically this patch would invoke commands that run without the typical limitations that a containerized process should have. This means that the uh, malicious user could create a malicious binary with the name Java in it, and the hot patch solution would then execute that binary. So since this runs, this hot patch process runs commands as root, basically that malicious binary is then executed with root permissions. So you're allowing, you know, a malicious user who can create that binary on a system can escape the container now and run, you know, arbitrary code on the, the host container, the, the host system that's hosting all these containers. Um, basically, you know, you've, you've gone from just normal user to, to root on the entire system, not just within your container. And anyone who's kind of seen news of container you know escapes that's that's kind of like the holy grail right like that's the worst case scenario when you're trying to isolate you know different systems on, on one host right i see yeah so this was kind of and the amazon factor i mean you know i think you mentioned amazon there but it, it just this could happen to anyone really it's just purely in this instance it was it was amazon which was was which was well were involved, I should say. The right, right. Yeah. Their hot patching solution is just, you know, an unfortunate example where the patching technique introduced yet another vulnerability unrelated to the original one it was trying to solve. Um, and it's it's just one of those, uh, this is something maybe overlooked, uh, not anticipated for. Um, so it's really interesting discovery from, from the folks at Palo Alto's Unit 42. I mean, kudos to them because this is a really great find. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I think you know when uh, I, I, you know, and I saw Claire talking about this, and yeah, Claire Tills, who wrote this blog, uh, obviously again there'll be a link in the, the notes. To this, uh, you know, it, it opened a, I say, a world of, of discovery for me with hot patching and how this happened. I thought it was a really, really interesting one. But um, for for log four shell though, log four J or shell as we call we're calling it, both things. Um, I mean, it's more fixes again. I mean, it, it I guess uh, as we record, we're around about coming up towards six months since this was uh, uh you know, since it was discovered. I'm sure there'll be lots of people with retrospectives of uh, of it. They're certainly getting retrospectives of uh, of other things at the moment. Um, for log for shell though, do you anticipate there'll be more fixes coming along um, over the months as we still feel the effects of this floor? Is it's it's not going away yet? 
I think with all the attention given to Log4j, it's likely we're going to continue to see new vulnerabilities announced and patches released. Um, so it's not the last time we're going to see it. I don't expect or anticipate that we'll ever see something within that same library that reaches the same level as Log4Shell. Um, something like that is is uh, it wants a decade type of find, right? It's it's something that exploitable, easily exploitable and, and uh, widespread uh, usage, right? So I'm sure we'll see other things that will be serious, but probably you know, just my, my, my guess, my take, my hot take here is that they will be some sort of context dependent, right? You have to have in your application designed in a certain way or utilize the library with maybe non-default options enabled. You know, those are likely the types of things we could see in the future. But it's always, you know, it's tough to say, but there's so much attention given to it. I think we'll, we'll continue to see, you know, uh, researchers and, and threat actors alike looking into it. One thing for sure, you know, is that organizations are going to continue to grapple with how to patch Mark Rochelle. Um, maybe in the aftermath of all of this, it helps them develop strategies on what do we do when a core library we use is affected by, you know, a serious vulnerability, you know. Is there, what are the plans that are going to be in place? How do we, how do we move forward? How do we mitigate it and then patch it in something that's, you know, needs to be thoroughly tested, uh, needs to go through lots of rounds of, of proper testing. And, and again, making sure you're not going to break existing functionality for some customers who may have this setting enabled or this setting enabled, you know, with your application. So it, it's maybe a wake up call and hopefully um, the next one you know, more organizations are prepared on, on how to respond to an obscure issue like this. Mm. Yeah. Well, it, it, it yeah, if we you know, hop back all the way back to Log4j, I think our podcast came out, um, I think it was 22nd December from memory, but uh, so it should be it should be available if you're subscribed or just visit uh, the website, technical.com slash podcast, and you'll find a link to the podcast that we did on, on Log4j, as well as lots of other material that Tenable produced. Um, it, it's, it's something, yeah, it did catch people by surprise, but at the same time, it, it, I guess the after effects have felt like this, and it's, um, yeah, stuff like the, uh, the hot patches that, that happened, and then, you know, it, it just proves that some vulnerabilities do persist. Um, obviously, there's even more uh, vulnerabilities out there that are going on. Um, Let's just wrap up then and talk about um, Patch Tuesday, uh, which literally came out as we record two days ago. Uh, this uh, was the 10th of May. Um, so it was a smaller number of patches um, than we saw in April. April had 108. Uh, but it was close to where we were with March, which was 71. So 73 total CVEs were addressed. Um, Scott, what stood out to you about this month's bundle of patches? So beyond just being a lighter patch Tuesday, one thing that I found really, really interesting was 30 of the 73 CVEs from this Patch Tuesday release were discovered and reported to Microsoft by uh, Kunlun Lab, a cybersecurity company uh, out of Beijing, China. It was just really interesting. Like, you know, we always look at the acknowledgement section and see, you know, who's reporting these. Sometimes there's some interesting uh, names and, and organizations in there. You know, we've seen past things reported by the NSA, National Security Agency, right? In the, here in the U.S., so um, to see that many vulnerabilities uh, associated with one organization, I thought that was pretty significant. So a lot of great finds. I think of that 33 or so were you know 9.8 CBSS scores or, or higher. I think actually no 9.8s. There were none higher. So the blog claimed that there were two uh, zero-day vulnerabilities fixed this month. Actually, it was three. One was announced just before Tuesday. So two came out on Tuesday. Uh, one just before. 
Um, one of these also exploited in the wild. Um, so three zero days in uh, a, a short period of time, Scott. What, what do we know about these zero days uh, in particular? Right. So we did list two in our blog, right? One did come out Monday uh, prior to the release of the Patch Tuesday release on Tuesday. So in our blog, we do count the two zero days that were released on Tuesday itself. So the first zero day is CVE 2022-26925. It's a spoofing vulnerability in the Windows Local Security Authority. Um, basically, what this allows an attacker to do is force a domain controller to authenticate to a server that you know the attacker controls using uh, new technology, LAN Manager (NTLM) uh, relay attacks. This is essentially a reintroduction of Petit Potum, you know, CVE 2021-36942, um, which was a flawed basically the same thing, right? A flaw that allows the attacker to force a Windows server or domain controller to authenticate to a malicious attacker controlled server. The, the, the kind of outcome of that is because, you know, you're forcing that authentication attempt, you can now steal authentication data and use them to do NTLM relay attacks. Um, essentially, you're, you know, you're, you're grabbing this data that you can use to then spoof you know uh, this authentication request it's it's a legitimate authentication request right you're stealing that replaying that um and authenticating to other machines so basically uh taking that and and being able to escalate to domain admin is, is would be the the sole outcome of of exploiting that flaw yeah um 2021 i've just looked that up and uh, that came out august 2021 it was uh there are plugins available across from Tenable, which are all rated critical. So I want to take seriously, Scott. I've got, what's, what's the rest of the uh, deal with the rest of the, the zero days then? So the second zero day of the month was CVE 2022-22713. It's a denial of service vulnerability um, impacting Windows Hyper-V. We really don't have a lot of information on this, unfortunately. Uh, the advisory from Microsoft was pretty vague, but it does mention that successful exploitation does require winning a race condition. Um, basically, you know, this is one that when all conditions are right, it's exploitable. Um, so probably proven, you know, after several iterations uh, of attempts, but this is not something we would anticipate or expect to be used in the wild uh, successfully, right? Because you have to win that race condition, one of two things is happening, right? Either you're, you're expecting all conditions to line up in your favor, or you're going to iterate through maybe tens to thousands of attempts trying to make that, you know, all, all, all things line up to exploit it. And, you know, denial of service vulnerabilities, um, they're still widely used, right? But on a wider scale and targeted attack, you know, a lot of organizations have some mitigations in place, um, potentially, you know, they're using a third-party service or they've got, you know, rules in place that, you know, an edge firewall to to try and mitigate the potential risks of a system going down from denial of service attack. So we don't see, uh, we don't anticipate these being just like the spray and pray, like just launch it across the internet and try to take down systems. You know, uh, in the early days, you know, the, the some of those hacker collective groups would do that for for fun. Um, now those things are easily mitigated by a lot of these services. Um, so beyond, you know, the very targeted and large scale DDoS attacks, we, we would not expect something like this to be to be widely used. Right. OK. And, and just on the on, on the impact, actually, there's always a, a 
part of the blog which features you know sort of the various impact levels should we say or, uh, of the the patches that have been uh, that have been fake or the, the vulnerabilities that have been fixed um in this month in particular because we always usually see remote code execution elevate elevation of privilege be the most common issues to have been addressed but this month, actually, there's quite a few uh, different impact levels. And you just mentioned denial of service. There's also security feature bypass uh, alongside that, so the more common ones. I mean, smaller numbers that the vulnerabilities were enabling. But um, how, how common are these, uh, you know, denial of service and security feature bypass I mean, in general, I mean, in terms of vulnerabilities? Is that something we see a lot of? And what can the impact be of, of exploiting those particular uh, those uh, features? Yeah, so the security feature bypass, denial of service vulnerabilities, we, we see these pretty commonly uh, amongst the Patch Tuesday releases from Microsoft. Uh, we don't often core them, cover them. They're usually um, lower scoring, lower severity vulnerabilities for, for the most part. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, denial of service in particular can be harmful uh, to organizations, but there's so many solutions, traffic management solutions, um, rules in place in third-party services to help mitigate these that beyond those wide scale, you know, d distributed denial of service attacks, DDoS. Um, we don't typically see those types of attacks used um, beyond, you know, a couple of different scenarios, right? Either you're, you're creating chaos for somebody just for the sake of it, or it's a distraction as some other attacks going on. Definitely feasible options. Um, same with security feature bypass, you know, some of these vary in severity and complexity. Um, it, in, in some cases, it's maybe easily exploitable. In other cases, it might be part of a chained attack where you're using, you know, this feature, this bypass to maybe gain some information um, about an attack or gain information about a target um, that you'll then use coupled with another vulnerability. So by themselves, you know, they're lower scoring, but in a chained attack, you know, th there is potential that these things are, are used in in these types of scenarios yeah well as they, they it just stood out to me because we don't often see them and we do see elevation of privilege and remote code execution and i've obviously talked to yourself claire and satnam in the past about the uh, you know the impact of those um but yeah, just just strike me as being something a little bit different, which is a uh, well, it's always always positive to keep something uh, something new appearing in these different levels of impact. But um, Scott, with that, we'll we'll bring things to an end. Thanks very much for your time and insight this month. Thanks for having me, Dan. And thanks again to Scott for his time and thoughts this month. Um, links to the blogs and some of the other links to vulnerabilities and stuff like that are in the show notes. Uh, please be sure to visit tenable.com slash research for more information on our output. Uh, on all of our uh, podcasts are available at tenable.com slash podcasts, including, as I mentioned, the one we did on Log4Shell back in December. And uh, actually, and like the mentioned the TLR from, from last year. We've got information of podcast on the TLR from this year which we put out in about mid-January. So uh, again, plenty for you to listen to if you have not already. Um, otherwise, there's other podcasts available. Recently, we had a conversation with Marty Edwards about OT security and uh, attacks as we mark a year since the Colonial Pipeline. And uh, we, you know, we talk regularly to Scott and also to his other uh, teammates, Satnam and Claire. So always lots of opportunities to catch up on what they've been talking about. Um, if you want to connect with me, I'm on Twitter at Dan Raywoods and I'm on uh, LinkedIn as well, my same name. Um, otherwise, thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time.